Tenakoto. A warm welcome to you all who have arrived here to this discussion and a big acknowledgement to our esteemed speakers who have come to support the topic of livable cities. And of course, this is part of our fun-filled uh, 10 days of the New Zealand International Science Festival. My name is Judith and I'm a member of the Festival Board. Our vision for the festival is to create an event that inspires and engages the community with science. Science impacts so many aspects of our daily lives and is the source of so many opportunities to improve the way we live. It goes without saying that engaging the community with science and ensuring that there are plenty of avenues for communicating important scientific messages is paramount to our social well-being. That's what we hope to provide fun, accessible and engaging festival that's all about science. Now I will pass on to our moderator for the evening and I would like to welcome Erin. So Erin Hawkins is a recovering elected representative and resource management commissioner. He has served six years on the Dunedin City Council and another three as mayor. In that time, his focus was on building an inclusive and accessible city that prioritised environmental, social and cultural well-being. At a national level, he was an elected member of local government New Zealand's National Council, was appointed to the Ministry for the Environment's Local Government Steering Group on Resource Management Reform, and was the founding co-chair of Local Government New Zealand's Young Elected Members Network. So, no rewa tenakoto, tenakoto, tenatato katoa. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the people of Kati Mamoi, Kaitahu and Waitaha as mana whenua of uh, this place that we know and love uh, as Otapoti Dunedin. It's under 40 in case anyone's wondering what uh, youth uh, is defined as uh, in the world of local government. We tried to make it 35 but we needed some sort of critical mass uh, and needed to push that out uh, a little a little bit. Um, uh, me to you Janet uh, for your warm welcome at, and on behalf of the, the festival. It's a pleasure uh, to, be, to be invited to be a part of this session this evening, one of a series of panels this week highlighting the work that's being done uh, under the National Science Challenges umbrella. And yes, uh, it's important academic research, but it's also a discussion about uh, how knowledge can be applied in a way that improves our everyday lives uh, and the natural environment that sustains us. Uh, how can trees and transport transform our cities? Uh, as we steer down the barrel of climate disruption, how can we reduce the risk uh, that our communities are exposed to? And perhaps above all else, uh, it comes down to questions about who are we and what do we value, uh, or indeed, uh, who uh, do we value? Uh, this is a subject uh, very near and, and dear to me. It's a large part of why I got involved in local government in the first place, because it had so much potential to improve the the everyday well-being of our communities to a degree that I don't think uh, many people realise. As has been well canvassed, uh, my uh, ideas about livable cities are wildly unpopular. Uh, and, 
<laughs> making me uniquely unqualified uh, to offer much uh, in the way of a contribution uh, to this discussion, but we've assembled a fine group of people uh, far, more, uh, far more capable than I am uh, who can take you on a journey over the next hour and a half uh, of what could be. Uh, and the timing uh, couldn't be better, really. As you may have heard, uh, universities up and down the country uh, are in a crisis mode. Significant uh, financial deficits uh, have raised the spectre of wholesale redundancies of both academic uh, and professional staff. While, uh, rightly, much of the focus has been on what that means for uh, for students, and it's important to us uh, here in, in, in Ōtapōti, Dunedin, uh, now and into the future, these, uh, these institutions are also critical centres of research. How much of that capacity are we prepared to lose uh, as a country, and how much uh, would it take to, uh, if ever, build that capacity uh, back up again? And I think over the next hour and a half or so, we're going to be reminded of how important uh, this capacity is as a public good, uh, but more than that, uh, the opportunity that it presents us with uh, to do things better uh, for more people and with more of a focus uh, on the future uh, in, in the longer term. Uh, we have five uh, presenters this evening who will each speak for five minutes, uh, but, and timing will be enforced ruthlessly because they are uh, academics after all. With 30 seconds to go, I'll politely interrupt with something akin to a short cough. <coughs> uh, when five minutes is up, I'll make the noise of assorted farmyard animals until they stop. Uh, you're welcome to join in. Uh, following uh, the five... I'm not actually going to do that, but Simon's got about... 38 slides, so uh, we may have to resort to desperate measures. Uh, following the five presentations, uh, I'll moderate uh, a discussion with the presenters and then we'll have some time at the end for Q&A from the audience. And because this is a university town, I'm obliged to give the following briefing to you uh, as an audience. Uh, we will be taking questions. Uh, at the end. Not more of a comment, really, uh, and I will repeat the best advice a panel chair ever gave uh, to a session I went to, a good question shouldn't require a second sentence. <laughs> Context is all very well and good, uh, but there'll be a chance after the formalities are done to buttonhole the presenter of your choosing. Uh, don't panic, they've all been issued with a, se a series of secret hand signals uh, to, to get rescued should the need arise, um, but we're leaning in heavily to our collective emotional intelligence. Uh, and hopefully that won't be uh, required. Uh, so that's about all for me. Let's get on with it. Uh, Dr. Robin Quigg uh, comes to us from Te Ropu Rākahu Māori o Kaitahu, the Naitahu Māori Health Research Unit, uh, has a wide range of research interests and is particularly interested in applying both a physical and a cultural well-being lens to those seemingly innocuous but indeed heavily contested recreational spaces that we know of as Parks. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome Robin uh, to kick off proceedings. Kia ora. Tenakoto? Hi. Hi. Kena nui, kena rahi, kua kapuni puni mai, itenawa, emihiana. Katoa ho kirunga etefenua on tangata o wataha o katamamoi. Me kaitahu i awhina mai nana tāku whānau. Ahu ko karekau he kupu wairua, e hihia ana ahau ki te mihi, ki te wairua, ki nga atua kei te kōrua, kei te ara hihia tātou i rotu tēnei kaupapa, e nga mea ake i tātou. 
He uri a hau no Rokawa me no Tukorahi, ko Robin Quick tōku ingoa. He pukinga hoa o Māori, ki te rōpū rakahau Māori o Kaitahu. He kairangahau matua o he toitu he kainga. I'm Robin and uh, I'm a descendant of uh, Rokawa and Tukorahi in the Waikato. I'm a lecturer in Māori Health in the Public Health Curriculum at the Ngātahu Māori Health Research Unit at the University of Otago and a Principal Investigator in the research project uh, He Toitu He Kainga, Healthy Environmental Relationships in Urban Settings. So thank you all for being here and thanks to the land and the people of Waitaha, Kāti Māimoi and Kaitahu who have cared for and nourished me and my family for a number of years. I've come to speak in this evening somewhat late in the piece, being voluntold by my professor and colleague. It's a great challenge to be the Māori voice in the kaupapa, so I must emphasise that I'm a Māori voice, and these are my points. We have a whakatauki, a saying that resonates for the people of Rokawa. Kofia te maunga e tautari mai nā. Which mountain are you waiting for, as mango tautari is often shrouded in cloud? And it's relevant here as the environmental messages are often hidden and as a mountain climb, hard to action. And I share that tonight as my research discuss, uh, focuses on land and its relationship to health, but specific, specifically public land, such as in parks and reserves. It's relevant tonight, for tonight's kaupapa because reserves, as public land for all of us, portray certain values through where they're located, their features, fauna and flora as they are today. Any help? Oh, oh, there we go. There we go. Oh, look. There I am. Right, Logan Park. I'm using Logan Park as an example, a prominent public land feature, indeed an asset of Dunedin. This picture is relevant today, showing what we value in this place. Manicured grass, trees from other lands lined up in tidy rows, flat land to chase or kick a ball. But these features and, and the shape of this park can also be seen as signals from the past. Some of you will have heard of Professor Linda Tuiwai-Smith. About 10 years ago, she published a book that had many words that made sense to me, but the ones that absolutely resonate when I reflect on parks and reserves are these. There was a very specific spatial vocabulary of colonialism that we can still see today. It was assembled around three concepts, the line, the centre and the outside. The line establishes boundaries, maps and, and maps territories. The centre is about orientation, with the centre being the system of power, while the outside is associated with positioning. And it positioned indigenous people in, in New Zealand, but also Australia and other lands, opposite to the centre, so they were outside. The past is relevant today because in parks and reserves, as contemporary public places, as lands that are good for us, they still portray the language of colonisation. For this, for this discussion about cities and climate change, this is from the ODT and it's Logan Park last year, living up to what it was, Lake Logan. But then why wouldn't it look like this when it rains? 1923, the work on uh, the reclamation of Palachet Bay. So as other speakers share their views about how we can adapt our cities and the way we inhabit them to make them more livable in an era of climate change, 
it may be that many of our answers from the past are from the past or are in the past and require us to step forward into that past, listening to the voices of the descendants of Tahu in, in their waiata, motiatea, karakia and puraka, as they remind us of what we have changed and the significance of that change, such as claiming rather than reclaiming a lake to be <coughs> land. Logan Park is just one example that demonstrates that the past may reclaim itself, perhaps examine what we had, but may have ignored or literally bulldozed and, uh, and built into something else, planted it with species from other lands and built facilities that value others. Papa Tuanuku and her children are showing us that their needs in our world today. May we all be listening. Ka whakamutu ahau te rā. Nō reira, tēnā koutou katoa. Associate Professor Carolyn Orchiston is the Director of the Centre for Sustainability at the University of Otago and very enthusiastic. Uh, Carolyn, no, 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 you've started. Uh, Carolyn completes the Rural Programme of the Resilience to Nature's Challenges National Science Challenge and is the science lead for Project AF8, an award-winning multi-agency Alpine Fault Response Planning Initiative. You can go now. Okay. <laughs> I've only got five minutes and far too many slides, so I'll, I'll launch. Tēnā koutou katoa. Welcome along and thanks for coming uh, tonight. So we talked about the order of who should speak uh, tonight, and I sort of bubbled up to the top because I'm the deliver, deliverer of... Oh, deliverer. You can, you can take that part out, Jerome, on, on the radio, um, of probably reasonably bad news around hazard and risk that we face in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I, I hark back to Sir Geoffrey Palmer's... Um, famous quote, sometimes it does us a power of good to remind ourselves that we live where two tectonic plates meet in a somewhat lonely stretch of windswept ocean just above the roaring 40s. If you want drama, you've come to the right place. So Auckland City, um, we, have, we have our largest city living amongst, uh, nestled amongst 49 separate volcanic cones, um, which the last of eruption amongst which was Rangitoto 600 years ago. Um, there's a pretty good chance, some, somewhere between, um, very likely is the descriptor on the probability, uh, within the next 50 to 100 years it will have another event in Auckland. And of course the, these are reasonably low probability but very high consequence events that our biggest city um, faces. Let's go a bit further south and of course Wellington, uh, home to our largest earthquake on record, the historic record that is, 1855, the um, magnitude 8.2 Wadadapa earthquake. We're looking right down the barrel of the Wellington Fault here as it goes all the way up uh, to the Hutt Valley. Um, our colleagues from Wellington know all about this, sorry to remind you. And there are a number of other earthquake sources in and around Wellington City which we need to be concerned about, uh, one of the largest of which being the subduction zone right underneath um, the eastern part of the North Island. The Wellington Fault has a probability of something like 10% in the next 50 years. So again, we have some risks here. A little bit further up the valley, uh, Lower Hutt, uh, some of the rare sort of flatlands of, of Wellington, and as a consequence, it's been heavily developed over a number of years. Uh, residential property being as, as sought after as it is, we've had a lot of infill, uh, a lot of property development, but also commercial um, and zones of, of uh, land use which are high risk. We have, of course, earthquake and, and liquefaction, but also tsunami, uh, rockfall, all sorts of things. Multi-hazard environment, that's what I'm calling it. You've also got the Hutt Valley, uh, Hutt River which has been known to flood uh, quite regularly in recent years. Um, so we have 
this illustration here of legacy planning issues where we've built our cities in places which aren't ideal and we weren't to know. I mean, now we have to live with it, but you know, these are things that we're going to be challenged by um, over the next uh, coming years. Let's go to, uh, oh yes, and, oh hang on, go back. Uh, Auckland again. Now, of course, perennial, perennial extreme weather events are becoming more and more common. This year alone, we've already paid out $1.2 billion in insurance payouts related to weather um, hazards, weather, weather events, and off the back of three record years of climate-related insurance claims, with the 2022 year being the largest on record, with $352 million in climate-related losses. So this year's been extraordinary, uh, but that's not to say that it's not going to continue to cost us an awful lot of money. Uh, 110,000 claims generated by the Auckland uh, um, anniversary and Gabrielle events so far. 85% of our population lives just five kilometres from the coast, and that includes all of the infrastructure that sits in that zone as well. So, in short, you know, we have this trend um, of extreme-related, uh, climate-related extreme events becoming more frequent and more intense, which has hu huge implications for our communities, for the availability of insurance, adaptation approaches, including uh, managed managed retreat or, or uh, managed relocation, which is sort of the preferred terminology these days. Back to Wellington, uh, you know, a lot of the coastal property is, is high value, but that's not always the case. Um, if you're living in these sorts of environments now, insurance companies are putting a price on that. So we have risk-based pricing that's coming into force. And so if you live in areas which have been hit several times before, you're more likely to pay a much higher premium. And this isn't just affecting uh, well, wealthy landowners on the coast. It's also affecting vulnerable communities. And we need to be very aware that uh, you know, there are implications for equitable and just transitions in our cities um, when we think about the vulnerabilities that might be exacerbated by these sorts of events in the future. Our own South Dunedin, known as uh, the, the highest risk urban environment in New Zealand for flood-related hazards, described by the uh, Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment in those terms. Um, so while the outlook is fairly bleak in what I'm describing, based on all these statistics and trends and forecasts, there are very promising and exciting things happening as well. Community-based initiatives emerging um, from the grassroots, which are really starting to drive um, and increase our, our resilience as a society. And I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about these sorts of things um, from the speakers that follow. Our own South Dunedin Community Network evolved out of the 2015 flood pictured here, led by some absolutely committed and passionate community leaders in South Dunedin. Um, they're building resilience not only to floods um, and other types of hazards, but taking a very holistic approach uh, to supporting their community in a range of ways. So the South Dunedin relationship uh, with the council was very fraught after this event. Uh, it wasn't a great uh, result when the mayor mentioned the dreaded M word in the paper the next day, the managed retreat, um, at, right off the back of this, this um, disaster that was unfolding in South Dunedin. So there was a lot of anger and frustration from the community um, sort of directed at the council and they've, they've worked very hard to try and repair that relationship. Aaron's probably got some things to say about that too. But um, there's a huge amount of effort going in by the council and by many local government authorities around the country to work with communities at risk to, to improve and to build resilience. So just wrapping up with a couple of slides and there are some words on these ones, Simon. Um, 
and now it's not working. So maybe I've been cut off. If you cut me off there, oh, there we go. <laughs> um, so the Resilience to Nature Challenge, which I, challenges which I'm re representing today, has worked really hard on the science to inform a lot of the decision making around uh, hazard, risk, and vulnerability, and the exposure of our communities and our infrastructure. And this all lines up really well with global imperatives around the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, which, uh, com which comes down into the National Disaster Resilience Strategy that was released by the, the then Ministry of Civil Defence and Emergency Management back in 2018. Now, in this document, you'll find an awful lot of uh, reference to well-being and to people and to uh, the, the importance of people in, in how we proceed from here and how we build resilience in our communities. Um, and finally, <laughs> um, the work that we've tried to do in RNC, as we call it, has been really very much at the interface of research into policy and, and into practice. Collaborative arrangements with uh, Matauranga Māori working across these various sectors, which you won't be able to see from the back, but very much holistically looking across uh, the, the, the resilient strategy and how we can feed into that. And essentially it's about the people. It's about uh, people, communities, building resilience, looking after each other. And we have a really great track, track record in New Zealand of looking after each other in disaster. Since 2010, when we sort of were awoken from our slumber, I guess, in terms of managing hazards and risks with the Canterbury earthquake sequence starting, since then we've had to become a lot more um, aware of the fact, as Jeff Palmer said, that we live in a very hazard-prone country and we need to keep working together to improve. Kia ora. Kia ora, Carolyn. Really, really important context, but you can understand now why uh, we chose not to put that last uh, in the in the in the series of presentations. And and really, really useful to to land on the comments that you made briefly around the importance of people, uh, and the importance of relationships, uh, and and the importance of of having trust and 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 building stronger communities. Because uh, it's really easy to talk about. Um, climate adaptation and, and climate mitigation in, in scientific terms or, or talk about the solutions in scientific terms, but a lot of these things um, won't work if you don't have uh, strongly connected communities and don't have those levels of trust in, uh, in your community. And uh, 2015 was a, um, a big wake-up call for the city as a whole, I think, uh, but as a result of that, I think, has, has managed to do a, a significant amount of work to, to rebuild that and to work with community on designing responses that uh, work for them, which isn't an easy process or a particularly quick one, but it is a, a hopefully a more uh, enduring one. Uh, professor Simon Kingham is a Professor of Geography at the University of Canterbury. In this role, he teaches and researches on a range of issues related to the impact of the urban environment on well-being, uh, with a specific focus on transport, which is, as we all know, never even remotely controversial. Uh, he's a Principal Investigator in the Healthier Lives and Aging Well National Science Challenges and seconded to Manatū Waka, the Ministry of Transport, as their Kaitohutohu Matua Pūtaio Chief Science Advisor. Interesting fact about Simon, he had a great idea for our presentations uh, that everyone would get three slides and they would just include photos. Uh, you're about to, you're about to uh, get a sense of how well uh, that worked, Professor Simon Kingham. Welcome. Yes, I did. I was a bit mischievous. And if this doesn't work, we could be here for a long time. Oh, here we go. 
Um, so my name is Simon Kingham. As I, as Aaron said, I'm a professor at University of Canterbury, and I'm also chief science advisor, Minister of Transport. If I say anything that's not government policy, that's me talking as um, a professor at the University of Canterbury. If I say anything that's government policy, that's Minister of Transport, obviously. What I'm going to talk about is how we can make streets and transport the transport environment better for our well-being and healthier. So this is kind of the framework we're looking at. We historically treat road space as a place for motor vehicles. Increasingly what we're trying to do, and this is actually from a government document, so it is kind of policy, is we're trying to acknowledge that the right-hand side is slower streets where we should be prioritising people, but we acknowledge that on the left we've got state highways and what we're calling movement corridors where we are designed primarily for traffic. Historically, we've treated them all for cars. I'm going to talk about perhaps how we can change the format and how that might better impact our well-being. I want to start with deaths and injuries from crashes. And the key point here is that if we reduce our urban speed limits from 50 to 30, we get significant benefits in terms of crash outcomes. And that graph shows, if you can see it, is that at 50, if you're hit by a vehicle going 50, you're almost certainly going to die. And, you are, and if you don't die, you're going to be seriously injured. If we can get those speed limits down to, or speeds down to 30, you've got a significant chance. In fact, it's roughly 90% chance of dying if you're hit by a vehicle at 50 down to about 10% if you're hit by a vehicle going 30. In other words, when people talk about reducing speed limits, and there's a lot of stuff going on in terms of speed limits, and I'm sure it's been around all our cities, it's really good to get them down to 30 in terms of the chances of you surviving. It's also really good for equity. This figure, just, I just showed one figure. This shows that if you're Māori, you are two and a half times more likely to die in a crash than if you're non-Māori. Therefore, if we can get the number of people dying in crashes down dramatically, we're actually doing a really good thing for equity. That's a stat that we actually don't know why. All we know is it's really bad. So if we can get less people dying on roads, and we know that reducing speed limit is a big part of it because they account for 30% of the deaths and injuries, then we can be, it's really good for equity. We also know it's more broadly good for equity. This is a guy called Danny Dorling. He's one of the most eminent professors in the UK, in the world, actually, in human geography. He's done loads of stuff on justice. He's quite left-wing. He talks about the structure of society and that sort of stuff. And when asked, he said the biggest thing we could do in the context of health inequalities to reduce them was actually to reduce speed limits. He's never, he's never studied, he's not a transport guy. And out of all the things he picked, he said reduce speed limits. So they're really good for inequality, and they're partly because people in low incomes tend to die more in crashes, so that's part of the, the equation. They're really good for low ambitions. Apologies for the text, but I couldn't find another way of doing it. We know that somewhere between 60 and 80 kilometers an hour is the optimum speed for minimizing emissions. But that is assuming you're all driving perfectly smoothly. Once you factor in stopping and starting, it all changes. So stopping and starting, accelerating and braking is what increases emissions. And so research tells us that a speed limit of around 30 kilometers an hour is the speed limit that minimizes emissions because it minimizes stopping and starting, accelerating and braking. So a 30-kilometer speed limit is also really good for emissions of um, greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, for an NO2, nitrogen dioxide, and for big trucks, it's actually 20K. And NO2 is really important because 2,000 people a year die from nitrogen dioxide pollution in this country. There's also a perception that if you slow speed limits, you're going to slow people down. It's going to be disastrous. It's going to take longer to get somewhere. Actually, it doesn't. And the same reason, it just smooths out traffic speeds. If people say it's going to slow us all down, the research is reasonably clear that it's not really, very slightly possibly. But overall, it's not going to slow us down much. Slower speed limits, more active travel are also good for mental health. So we know from research that people who walk or bike, their mental health is better during their journey. There's a whole bunch of research that tells us so. More people walking and cycling, better for our mental well-being. 
Similarly, it's good for social interaction. We know on streets where there is less traffic and slower traffic, people know their neighbours more. They have more social interaction and stronger community. Research done in this country as well. So it's been done internationally, but we've also done this in Christchurch and know it applies. We also know in countries where more people walk and cycling, obesity rates are lower. And in countries sadly like the US, New Zealand and Australia where we have very low rates of active transport, we have much higher rates of obesity. And this is one of my favourite graphs because it's kind of this perfect inverse relationship. You get this great curve going at the opposite. So higher uh, active transport, lower obesity. We also know that you can create more bumping and play spaces. So on streets with lower traffic, less fast traffic, you actually create places that people can play and bump into each other. This is an example um, of a basketball hoop. It's actually put outside my house. My son decided he wanted to play basketball. My wife and I looked around for somewhere he could play. The only bit of tarmac that was big enough was the pavement and the street. So we put a basketball hoop out there. And what happens is this picture I'm showing you is I don't know who these kids are. And I'm, that's kind of slightly stalkerish and spooky. But the point is that loads of kids stop and play at this basketball hoop. We leave a basketball out there, they stop on the way to and from school. All sorts of random kids play, we get tradies playing, and the point is that we've created a place to bump into each other, a place of accidental social interaction. And we then did some research on it, and we found out that those accidental places of interaction and those gathering places that are locable, locable, local, they're walkable, they're close by, are really good for social interaction. And social interactions are really good. They're really good when you have natural disasters, as we've heard earlier, but they're really good generally when people talk to each other and bump into each other. And here's an example. This street was closed. Again, it is actually my street. It was closed for 12 weeks when they wanted to dig up the pipes because they needed to repair stuff after Christchurch. It lasts a long time. It's still happening. And what happened is one of the neighbours said, let's all play cricket on the street. And the following weekend, he said, let's all play basketball on the street. And what people say to me is, this is crazy because you play on the street and cars will come down and they'll run you over. What's interesting is when cars see children playing on the street, they slow down. They don't intentionally run them over. What's also... <laughs> What's also interesting is when children see cars, they gently walk out of the way and they carry on when when afterwards when the car's gone. And because it's only people who live there who come down the street, because it's close to through traffic, you actually get... Uh, they all kind of recognise the kids and they recognise the neighbours. And you get these sorts of interactions. And again, we did some research on this. We asked people... I didn't do the interviews for ethical reasons, I wouldn't, but my colleagues interviewed the neighbours, people who lived on this street, and they said, yes, it was very slightly... Um, irritating, it slowed us down, a little bit inconvenient, but the benefits were great because the kids could play on the street, we got to know our neighbours, and they said we would like this to carry on. So actually closing streets to through traffic is not an unpopular policy. It's unpopular if you tell people you're going to do it, but if you then do it and then you ask people afterwards, most people actually really like it because you've created a place of play <laughs> and social interaction. <laughs> but people don't like it before because they worry about what it'll do, but they like it afterwards. And there are examples of streets we've transformed. This is a street in Christchurch before the, the earthquakes, and this is what it's like now. If any of you have been to the Riverside Market, we've created this amazing environment, and if you'd asked people before we're going to do that, people would have been really worried and anxious about it. Now nobody wants it back like it was. Auckland's done the same. I think it's Fort Street. They've slowed it down. They've got people walking. They've created a really positive uh, space for mental well-being and physical health and physical activity. In Barcelona, they call it um, super blocks. On the left-hand side, you can see what it used to look like. They basically restricted access to through traffic in them. And what you guess is it goes like the image on the left with cars to the image on the right, and you can see a bigger one. 
you've created exactly the same street, but we've just slowed the traffic down, restricted some access, and cre created these amazing places of amenity and social interaction. So what we're looking for is, can we move towards street for people where we see signs like this that say, yes, you can drive down there, but just beware that it's a place we're prioritizing kids. Or this one which says, cars are the guest. So yes, it's a street in the Netherlands. Um, it's a cycle street. You can walk down there, but cars are the guest rather than the other way around. So to end, my favorite quote is, if you plan cities for cars and traffic, you get cars and traffic. If you plan for people and places, you get people and places. And perhaps we need to change the dial and start planning our streets for people rather than planning them for cars. If anyone wants more reading, I really recommend this. And I don't have shares in it. It's a book called Happy City by a guy called Charles Montgomery. And it explains a whole load of the literature why we need to change the form and function and the way we use streets. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only person here familiar with the concept of hindsight when it comes to <laughs> transport planning. I mean, a couple of just anecdotal things. My son learned to ride a bike when he was four uh, in March of 2020 solely because uh, the roads were devoid of traffic and he could safely navigate that neighbourhood and was able to do that. And uh, that's a, a remarkable thing to do for independence that would have been denied him otherwise. Uh, and, and a couple of years later, we were living in a different neighbourhood and I got very nervous because they were putting in a roundabout at the end of our street. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, the mayor personally chooses all the intersections where uh, roundabouts are put in. And I was like, oh God, people are going to get real mad at us because we're shutting down the street. And the only negative feedback we got in our neighbourhood about that project was when it reopened. Because people were more than happy having it closed off to traffic and people could play frisbee in the street and, and their kids could bike and do all of those sorts of things. And I th so I think you're... Right, but making that cognitive leap into the abstraction at the beginning, uh, and we can get to that, um, I think, a little bit later on, because I think it's a general point among many of these things is the, is the, real, uh, is the real obstacle. Dr. Robin Simcock is a reconstructive ecologist at Monarchy Whenua Landcare Research, and I didn't know what that was either, uh, but you're about to find out. Carrying out research and consultancy in areas where people strip ecosystems down to rock cities, roads and mines, and then rebuild uh, native ecosystems. Since 2008, uh, this has included developing living components of water-sensitive design, uh, sustainable urban design such as green roofs and rain gardens that use our native plants and soils, uh, and uh, more recently, helping colleagues explore the role of large trees in delivering urban well-being and equity. Kia ora, Robin. Kia ora. <laughs> Kia ora. Um, so I'm going to talk about sponge cities because livable cities are sponge cities. Oh, come on, mate. Right. <laughs> so we also call it water-sensitive urban design, or if you're in the UK, you call it SUDS, and if you're in the USA, they call it LID, low-impact design. So this is what it means. And this is the only two slides at the beginning and the end that aren't from Dunedin. Okay, Dunedin is the most awesome place to do this sort of work. Um, so I've got four minutes, I've got one barrier, four ways trees supercharge our sponginess, and three things we can demand from our councils and our government to actually get them. So first, the barrier. So barriers are... <laughs> we need the picture on the right, P3, University of Otago, not the picture on the left from Cumberland. Okay, we need the picture on the right, beautiful permeable paving with trees, not the car park on the left. And we need beautiful places like this 
not was on what was on the other side before. I know you what it was before, so I didn't put the before in. So what's about these places is that they're spongy. So basically, naturally, rain absorbs and soaks into the ground, or it's intercepted by plants, and then it's evaporated by the surface. Okay. In cities, we can also capture that water because it's precious. And for example, um, as, as is done here, capture it from the roof, use it for things like toilet flushing if we're scared about it, or washing, washing machines. Um, and any surplus can go into robust landscaping, swales, rain gardens, and then soak into the earth and replenish the streams. Right. So it's detention and filtration. Our green spaces are super important for this. And I quite like this example, although it's pretty hard-edged. It's sort of the Dunedin version of what we do in Auckland. <laughs> um, I've seen the Leithan flood. It's got space for the river to flow, and it's a park. Okay, so that's awesome. That's really nice in terms of sponge city. Put some trees in there, it'd be even better. So part two, trees supercharge sponge cities. They are, they are the um, motivator, and they do that four ways. And I'm not talking even about the poor, stressed-out health science student on the right who's just hugging that poor tree in the botanic gardens because he's desperate for his mummy. <laughs> Trees, in terms of a tree canopy, they will intercept 40 to 60% of the rainfall, 60% of Dunedin because your rainfall is so misty and light and, and non-intensive, 40% if we're up in Auckland probably doesn't even hit the ground, just hits the leaves and then evaporates off, as long as they've got leaves on them, which is one of the issues if you've got deciduous trees. Um, trees can cover impervious surfaces, so they can cover a road or a footpath and make an impervious surface perfect pervious. It's magic. They also use a lot of water. Trees in summer, when, it's, when there's a wind blowing, act like, like the washing lines and basically they'll pull all the water out of the soil if the water is available. That's important because that water that's out of the soil creates space for rain to fall into and that's what helps mitigate our floods. Okay? They can do that for between 20 and 80 mils. So basically 99% of your rainfalls are less than that. They also restore the soil. So trees in terms of their leaf litter, as long as you allow the leaf litter to accumulate, um, through their roots when they die and through their branches when they fall off, they, they enrich and keep the soil open so it can keep receiving the water and store more of it. So trees super important. Unfortunately, if you read this awesome report, and I think you, you need to, you need to go and find this online, and you need to read this um, Parliamentary Commission of the Environment report that came out last year about harder, hotter cities. It's, um, it's pretty scary reading, and he's done an amazing work, him and his team. Um, it's basically found that much of our urban space is treeless. 60% in Auckland and Hamilton is just grass that's mown with, with machines that emit carbon. In Wellington, they've survived by their town belt, and I suspect here as well. The town belt is doing a lot of work for you, so you've got 60% trees rather than 60% grass. Um, he finds that the urban green space per person has, has reduced dramatically that councils are not providing enough green space compared to what they were doing 30, 50 or 80 years ago. And I know it's a cold night, so it was a really dumb slide. Uh, Right-hand side from um, Ashley Broadbent from Niwa is showing that the surface outside Parliament down in Wellington was 47 degrees last summer in the open and 20 degrees underneath a tree. I guess we'd quite like that today, right? 
So, we need to get spongy. And we need to get spongy really fast. Um, every photo I've shown you is from Dunedin. So you can do it, you're just not doing it fast enough. Right? Um, we can do three things. We can demand that our councillors and our, our government do three things to help us. The first is we need an impervious surface charge. We need it based on the bird's eye view of properties. It's easy, it's quick, and my colleagues have done it for the, piece, for the PCE report. It generates money for depaving. It means that if you have a tree over pavement, that tree's paying you to be there. So it's a game changer. Second, we can use this tool, which I will just explain that on the right-hand side, we use it in stormwater because stormwater is a huge budget, that when they say we're going to put asphalt and pipes in, we can compare the services that we get there with what we get when we change that to trees, rain gardens and swales, so that we can have an honest, honest discussion about what business as usual is not providing us. And um, thirdly, we need to reinstate tree protection, especially big trees, and we need to set tree canopy goals. So here, uh, it's not great, but it's pretty good from Dunedin. Um, there's a 33300 rule that's been proposed by a university professor over in Vancouver, uh, no, BC, and every tree, every person should be able to look out a window and see three trees. Every street, every school, every car park should have minimum 30% cover, and everyone should be able to walk 300 metres to the nearest park or less. It's a bit rule of thumb, but people remember it, and it generally works. So to close, you know, we've been doing green roofs and landscaping since the beginning of the third age, right? We know how to do it in the earth, so we sort of just need to get cracking. Thank you, Robin, and a really great um, uh, perspective looking at recreational spaces and, and Simon was speaking about how we use a recreational space from a, a climate resilient point of view by building stronger communities and, and the function that, that, that they have and we don't think about playgrounds and skate parks and basketball hoops and all of those things as a climate adaptation but they absolutely are. Um, but, but taking that further from a... From a from an adaptation point of view and, and the role that your parks and recreation spaces play as sponges in heavy rain events and sometimes it's counterintuitive and there were certainly plenty of people when the big wet happened in Auckland who were complaining and grizzling about how the parks were in flood and then Julie Ferry madly trying to respond to every single person on Twitter saying no that's what they're designed to do, they're doing their job uh, because otherwise uh, it would be um, there'd be more of your homes and businesses that would be uh, that would be flooded but incredibly important. Um, uh, urban uh, urban green space infrastructure, um, which is almost a segue into our, our final uh, presentation. Um, he, he planned it thoroughly. Dr. Danielle Shanahan is the CEO at Zealandia and adjunct professor at Te Heringa Waka Victoria University, Wellington. Uh, she led Zealandia's restoration efforts inside and outside the fence for over five years and has carried out cutting-edge research into what nature means for people's health and well-being. Uh, she has worked internationally on challenges including human-elephant conflicts in Myanmar, and only see one outcome there, uh, and expanding the national park estate uh, in Australia. We had a, a brief discussion uh, in advance of this um, when we tried to figure out what the order 
order of proceedings would be. And one of my favourite all-time uh, memes is a metronome uh, furiously swinging between uh, a better world as possible uh, and we're all uh, doomed. Uh, it puts it in slightly more blunt language uh, and it's swinging wildly from side to side in the middle of the metronome just says me. Uh, and that's sort of uh, that's sort of it, really. Uh, but my goal was to try and make this as optimistic as possible when Danielle said, put me last. Uh, I can go big on hope. Welcome. Uh, kia ora, everyone. Um, so nice to see many lovely Dunedin faces. But I think uh, hospitals are somewhat topical in this uh, city at the moment as well, aren't they? Uh, I visited my mum in hospital in Wellington this morning. The mechanical thrum of the air purifier kept us uh, company, if not a little bit distracted and somewhat crazy. Um, if you sat in exactly the right place at 11.45am, a little thin beam of sunlight could hit your face just for a moment. I noticed while I was sitting there, the only living thing, or the evidence of living thing, apart from the chatter of my mum, was the flowers I'd bought her on the weekend. So our healing spaces are now so often places where only one species, and that is our own, seems to thrive. This is despite all our instincts, of course, telling us, screaming at us, uh, that we need much more than that, to not just heal, but to thrive, of course. So why is it that for so long we've designed our cities in the same way, devoid of nature? You know, these are the places that are meant to make us thrive, prosper, be productive, you know, the, the hubs of human productivity. So globally now, we have overwhelming evidence that uh, nature is absolutely critical for our social, physical, and uh, mental well-being, of course, as well. These multi-faceted benefits that we find from nature, they're actually quite, it's quite unique. There are very few tools in our tool chest that help us achieve so many outcomes at once. And we've got a glimpse of those in the, you know, what Robin's talked about. Um, but I'm going to give you a little bit of an insight into the individual and some of the research that's emerged globally in this area. So one of the coolest papers that I've seen come out recently actually took a longitudinal deep dive into epigenetic ageing. That study found that people who live in greener landscapes across the course of their life tend to have fewer genetic mutations that lead to premature ageing and, of course, death. That paper from the US also found really interesting uh, links to equality. So we've got patterns across the globe that show that people who are more disadvantaged from different racial backgrounds tend to have less green space, also tend to live uh, less years, if you will. So we've got some very, very powerful mechanistic evidence now for why some of these patterns might be emerging, or at least one of the links. Pretty cool study. So another way that nature affects our well-being is, of course, another emerging and very prominent area of uh, medicine at the moment, which is our microbiome. Now, some super interesting studies now that um, exist that link, for example, having a diversity of plants around the home connected to uh, the microbiome that you might find on the skin of a child. That microbiome that you find on the skin of a child is linked to inflammatory responses, and then we see outcomes in allergies and asthma rates. So we have very di direct potential consequences of having access to diverse green space around the home.
some really cool ideas emerging in this area at the moment as well. For example, our microbiome being linked to a particular place, you know, which gives us a very physical connection to the place where we grow up as well. So some really interesting uh, uh, results emerging from that. Another really neat uh, piece of research, uh, particularly in the, the challenge area that we've been working on, actually links to something that Simon was talking about and these ideas of accidental interactions. So if you are a person who uses green spaces more often, you're more likely to trust your neighbour to feed your cat. <laughs> Sounds small, but as we get older in particular, we need those social connections um, to help us stay healthy, to help us stay well. So to take this a step further, we've seen in Wellington that those who get involved in community environmental action, whether it be planting or trapping, they have fewer symptoms of depression, anxiety and stress. So all of this just highlights that we've got these multifaceted benefits that we gain from green space. And in fact, the Parliamentary Commission uh, report recently highlighted green space and nature as being important to have in cities as sewage lines or roads. The evidence is compelling. But we still don't do this very well in New Zealand especially. We have a major opportunity right now as we go through urban renewal in almost every one of our city centres. We are trying to house more people. This is our moment, our moment to shine. So what do we need to do? Well, first, we need to ensure that our, our new urban planning areas, our regulatory frameworks, have biodiversity in the foundation. The problem with biodiversity, it's bloody hard to retrofit. Now, you can take the swear word out of the YouTube, I think. But it is really hard to retrofit. I know from Zealandia, translocating a species back into a landscape is very, very difficult and takes many years. It's not worth it. You've got to start with protecting the species, the birds, the lizards, the plants, in situ at the beginning. Second, we need to get creative. We can look overseas for some really inspiring stuff. Singapore has amazing buildings. Uh, hospitals, I heard from Robin earlier, doing incredible things with green roofs. This kind of uh, image reminds me of the towering virgin forests of Aotearoa, New Zealand. You know, if you think of a big rimu or rata with the epiphytes hanging off it, why can't we recreate this in our cities? It's totally possible. We have the uh, physics, the architecture, we have the engineering to make this possible. And it's time for us here. Third, I want to highlight that we need to support our communities. Communities have been a theme in every single one of these uh, comments so far. But we certainly know that we need to support our communities in looking after biodiversity in the places where they live. We have hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours going into community pro-biodiversity efforts right now across New Zealand. But they are under-supported, they're underfunded, and we need to get better at doing that. So, just harking back to that, you know, that uh, fairly nature-bereft hospital that I mentioned earlier, you know, our communities really are recognising that the human species cannot live without the vital life support system that is nature. Our opportunity is to get behind those communities, pull that into our regulatory frameworks, provide the incentives and the regulations that make this kind of thing happen. And it is possible we've seen that overseas. So there. Hope. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Danielle. I've got a note here that just says killing things is a good cure for depression. 
um, which I'm sure was the takeaway that you had in mind uh, from that. Um, a round of applause, please, for our presenters. And from here, my intention is to ask a couple of open-ended questions that people can choose to respond to or not, and then we'll take uh, questions questions uh, from the audience. And there's been some discussion over the last couple of days about where sociology fits uh, in the science and research framework. And and you know we've got we've been presented with no shortage of answers to the problems that we are all facing, uh, and so we know what needs to happen. And, and you know, transport is the world I'm probably most familiar with, and it's one of the most frustrating things because, you know, it's the easiest and the hardest problem to solve, and that it's easy because we, the alternatives exist and we know what needs to be done. It's the hardest because there's a, a, a cultural resistance to doing that. Uh, but just in, in general, I'm interested in, in people's thoughts on how we might bridge that gap between knowing what needs to be done, and we've seen that over the last half hour or so, and actually getting it done. <laughs> so um, I, I'm going to talk about this from a biodiversity perspective. And actually, I forgot my last slide. Could you just flick it one more, Robin, while you're down there? <laughs> um, in Wellington, we've seen a really interesting pattern. There's a kaka in Wellington. And... Um, the, there's different answers, I think, for different dimensions. But for biodiversity, one thing we've seen is that if the species or the unique thing shows up in the neighbourhood, a community will see possibilities in that. Um, and it's been very powerful. That um, a kereru showing up in Crofton Downs, where they'd been gone for 100 years, was the impetus behind predator-free New Zealand. I don't know if people here are familiar with that initiative, but it's this massive, ambitious goal of eradicating rats, possums, stoats from mainland New Zealand by 2050. A moonshot, but it started by someone seeing something that needed action. So that's a, a lens for biodiversity. I think it's harder for you guys. <laughs> Uh, um, I think I live on the peninsula and the possum-free peninsula is um, uh, becoming a thing. So, yeah, it's quite exciting. Um, I suppose the other thing is a long time ago, I, um, one of my lecturers was uh, Professor John Haywood from uh, Lincoln and um, uh, uh, important and uh, significant man in the, res in the resource management uh, space. And I always remember him saying about the Clyde Dam at the time, uh, nobody ever said, you know, it, it, the question was, can we build a can a dam be built there? And the answer was yes, because you can engineer anything. Nobody ever said, should we? <laughs> or is that the right place? And so that's my comment, is to ask the different questions, look at things with a different lens, um, particularly from an indigenous perspective. What would Māori say? What would... You know, someone you know, or my auntie, what would my auntie say, or my karaua, or something? Think about that before you answer. Well, I, I, one thing I'd say is that in Christchurch, after the earthquakes, we ran a big consultation process called Share an Idea. And what Share an Idea was really good for is it asked people what they wanted the city to look like with no plan. And everybody came out with the similar things. They said they wanted greenery. They actually said they wanted lots of cycleways. They wanted um, a city that wasn't dominated by the car. And what it means is that now 
Christchurch, the council, can still say, look, you told us that. Because one of the problems we have at the moment is when we say we want to dig up your road or we want to put a cycleway outside your shop, people complain because it, it's very personal, it affects them. But if you've already got a mandate, a broader mandate, I think you can actually say, look, actually, this is what you told us as a community rather than as an individual. And perhaps sometimes as cities we need to go back and do those big picture consultations and say, what do we want as a society, as a city? Because then when people complain about it being in their own backyard, you can say, well, actually, you kind of said you wanted this, and I'm sorry that we're going to move the car park outside your shop or your house, but actually it's in the bigger interest and the better interest of everybody. So perhaps we need to start consulting on the big vision, and green, and we will come out, quieter streets will come out, and then we, we develop a, a population-based mandate for stuff. And, and, and consult less on the specific detail? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, yes, because we over-consult on extreme, down to extreme detail. And the other thing I think that's coming at the moment, and certainly in the context of transport, is, is you trial stuff and consult after you've trialled it. And so one example you can do is you can actually put trees in in pots and say, did you quite like a tree there? Oh, actually, it's quite a good idea. And then you put a tree in permanently. But you slow traffic down and you ask people after. Because I think people fear what they don't know and what they haven't experienced. But when you've trialled it and then you ask people after, they tend to be more positive about things that sound a bit too radical. And so there are now the process to try and do that, but it does mean elected officials have to change the natural mindset and the population shouldn't have to change their natural mindset. As a species, we're not particularly good at abstraction, are we? You know, like people, you know, asking people to envisage something that is unfamiliar to them is a lot harder to do than protecting a thing that they know and understand. Absolutely. Yeah, just following on from that, I suppose that in, in the... Has Ooh. In the hazard and risk space, you know, we have motivations to prepare for disasters, to have, you know, personal preparedness and intentions to prepare, but we don't necessarily always follow through. And I think that's caused by lots and lots of different things. Partly it's resourcing. Do we have the financial and, and the, the time resource available to actually dedicate to getting better prepared as individuals and as communities? Um, it's also driven by past experience of disruption. So if you've lived through a disaster, you're more likely for a time to get prepared, to actually be stimulated to, to make, take those steps to get prepared. So, I mean, I don't think we need to sell the science of climate change or of, of hazard and risk in New Zealand. People understand now, I think more than ever, that we, we're going to expect more and more disruption in future. But going from there to getting better prepared and building resilience is a step that, you know, it takes energy, resource, time. You know, there's politics involved and there are lots of reasons why people choose not to go in that direction. What is... How... Sorry... It's a very specific question um, that I could have asked in advance, but chose not to. Um, how wide is that window for people mm. in terms of the, you know, how... It doesn't take long for the for motivation yeah. to decline. There is a, a very, quite rapid um, reduction in, in motivation. We've seen that in the Christchurch earthquakes. And interestingly, you know, Wellington was always our big city in terms of seismic risk. We all thought Wellington would get hit first. Christchurch came along. You would think that that would stimulate Wellingtonians to get better prepared. But no, that wasn't really the evidence. And it's really interesting that we uh, there's a, a psychological phenomenon called the optimistic bias, where you know we think that bad things are going to happen to other people. Yeah, when you talk about disasters, people often say, oh, other people will be injured and killed, and, and, and they, they think that they're going to have a better outcome. So this is an innate kind of human condition around these things, which is hard to get by sometimes. Um, because I do work with NZTA, which I should have actually told you before, 
One of the things that really annoys me is um, value engineering, which strips off anything that's not a direct KPI. So I can tell you any number of swales, green roofs and green infrastructure that's been stripped off as green fluff from NZTA projects and then stripped out in the very detailed contracting regime that goes through. So if we care about something, we have to make sure it's a shell or a must and, and in those contracts as KPIs. If you want drainage, you'll get drainage. You won't get anything else around it unless you specify you want a tree to do that rather than a pipe. Something on that. I, yeah, I just sort of feel as though we're getting to the stage as a country and as a globe where we have to have a sustainability lens across everything. Every decision we make, we should be thinking about how do we improve biodiversity, how do we improve well-being, and you know those sorts of things. It's very simple at that point to say we're going to keep those swales, we're going to keep that sponginess. It's important. It's going to cost a bit more, but in the long run, run it's good for us. You know, so how hard is it to do those things? I know it costs money. This is probably where it ends. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, and, and our decision-making frameworks don't encourage good, holistic um, outcomes. I mean, when you, you're in Treasury's death by business case model and you get a score out of three for greenery and you get a score out of three for travel time saved and you get a score out of three for price, then you add up all the scores and you go, oh, well, they're all the same, so you might as well take the cheapest option. This is literally how this works. You know, it's really hard to get good long-term outcomes and you know, once in a generation or multiple generation infrastructure decisions, which give us such a huge opportunity, uh, and then are just squeezed out or value managed out, and you're left with, you know, essentially the status quo, but with a couple more trees and maybe a bike park or something. You know, I'm not bitter about it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, just to, just to add there, like our consenting follow-up processes are shocking in New Zealand. So, for example. Buried landfills, you know, consent conditions in place in buried landfills that are never, ever followed up on or checked or delivered. And I think it, even just actually administering properly the, the rules and laws that are in place would probably take us a long way forward. <laughs> Do you know that many of the buried landfills are actually parks, the sports fields? Right. <laughs> yeah. Compliance, monitoring and enforcement has never really been a political priority of anyone, I don't think. Um, Robin uh, has already led off uh, on this to some degree, but um, I'm, I'm interested in any, uh, at this point, if, if anybody had any concrete suggestions that they thought people should be angling for either at a local or a central government level in terms of who, you know, what could we be doing to achieve these sorts of outcomes, and I know the answer is probably going to be more money, uh, and that's a whole different uh, conversation for a very different festival, I'd imagine, uh, which wouldn't be anywhere near as fun. But um, <laughs> but what are the you know what else do we want to put on the table in terms of tangible things that we could be pushing for to to get the outcomes that we're after? So I don't like George W. Bush, but he did one amazing thing for America. <laughs> he, made, he passed a bill that said every government building, federal building I think it was, had to be constructed with either a 30 or a 50 year cost benefit analysis for construction and maintenance. And that drove green infrastructure because it drove resilience and it decreased operating costs and maintenance costs. It was the start it was the, of green roofs in America. And, and you think of something like Christchurch Hospital, 
signed off by Cabinet, stripped off the green roof, stripped out stuff that was going to be energy saving because it was all about the capital project. So we could do that. We could, simple. Yeah, we're very familiar with value managing um, hospital projects. Yeah, and it's the same because the focus, and you know, because people were more interested in wards, aren't they, and hospital beds and not what the 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 wider well-being offering of that building might be over 50 or 70 years here. Yeah. I've got one thing I think people should do, and I think people need to engage and p p submit if you like something. Because I know one example, for instance, when people propose closing a street to food traffic or removing bike par parking to put a cycleway in, they get masses of submissions from one or two very angry people. And dare I say, I don't want to besmirch politicians, but sometimes they wilt under that. And so I think it's really important for people... Sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, regularly, but but I think it's really important that people actually submit. So if you if there's something you think is a good idea, but you're not super passionate, go and tell people you think it's a good idea, because they'll always be the really angry people. And the other thing, of course, is look at we're coming up to an election. Vote based on what evidence, because I think some politicians are very evidence based and some perhaps less so. So I'd say get involved in politics, because otherwise you'll just get stuff that's that the angry people don't like, or the angry people do like. Yeah. Um, I guess mine is, uh, it's, an, it's an old mantra, but I think it's very true as well still, which is the um, think globally and act locally. I mean, it's, it's, it's real. Um, but also on that, I suppose, I, one of the things I teach is about institutional racism. And one of the things, uh, you know, it's really difficult to change an institution, but actually each individual can make a step um, about choosing... I don't know, the, the stuff we do at the university is, actually, I don't want to speak in that room because it, you know, it gives me the shivers, all the um, people looking at me around, you know, uh, I won't go on to that one. Um, but, um, yeah, that, it's that sort of step is sort of make, if people can make their own stands as well about the little things, because those little things do make a difference. They make a difference to us as Māori, um, those people that you know who are, are different to the norm, maybe those little things that you can do that uh, includes them in the decision making uh, or takes into account their values are really important. I think you've said it. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a, a great place for us to stop and you to start. Jerome is gracefully making his way down the catwalk to get a microphone, which he will. <laughs> Take uh, take out into the audience as soon as there's a place for him to go. Are there any questions? A trepidatious hand at the back. You'd be terrible at auctions. <laughs> Sold <laughs> to the man at the back. I have one if um, that's good. still thinking. Was there a hand? No, no, it was a misunderstanding. Okay. <laughs> Unlimited budget. So, you Don't know, look at me. A moonshot mm -hmm. question. Mm. How would you convince critical mass of population to be wanting these changes and not constantly against everybody not wanting these changes? PR, marketing, etc. How do you run a million of these. The other mantra is making the right choice the easy choice. So um, 
supply the trees, you know, literally the, the right ones in the pots on wheels, um, you know, community gardens, buy up that land that had the factory or whatever on it and turn it into the right park. That's, that's it for me. Yeah, I think it's about resourcing communities. I mean, there are some outstanding examples of the Department of Internal Affairs funding the Valley Project, our very own Northeast Valley Valley Project, you know, the South Dunedin Community Network. These are projects funded by central government and supported locally and making huge change to help communities, you know, come together across all sorts of different issues and have a voice, have a voice to local government. So I think if we had unlimited funds... Any community who wanted that sort of support could get it and it would make a huge difference. I can just add to that in terms of um, uh, in Tairawhiti, you know, where, where did the majority of people end up when uh, their homes were destroyed? They were in Marae, you know, and, and so um, accessing, you know, making the funds easy to keep that going and the same um, with housing, um, Papakura Marae, I think it was, back in the day. So, you know, those those communities still exist. They are still operating there and they're here and and but but make the funding easier. Yeah, and just a, a different mind shift for funders. I say that as someone who was a, has been a funder in different different ways. It's really easy, I say easy, but it's far easier to get funding for buying things uh, and building things and a whole lot more difficult to get money to invest in the people that you need to be in those things because you can't put a plaque on a paycheck. Uh, and, and I think it, it's a big shift that philanthropy needs to make, or whether it's a pub public or private, uh, in just giving money to people and letting them get on with it in a, in a far more high-trust way than um, the um, the current systems would allow. And, and it's it's been in, it's whether it's DIA or, or or council or whoever has been investing in place-based community groups, we've seen the benefit of that. Uh, but that was a huge that was a big uh, that required a big leap. Of, of faith for for those funders to do that, and I think they just need to be encouraged that without funding and people and resourcing people, uh, we're not going to get very far. Um, a big outcome in some of the research happening in the environment sector is that um, tap in, tap out funding, three years of funding, and then not no reliability just kills these initiatives that take 20, 30 years to achieve. So it's, you know, it's not just that initial investment, it's committing for the long haul, trusting the community and developing metrics to measure success that are meaningful to that community as well. It's very easy to helicopter in and make prescriptions there. So it's a, it's a very a clear outcome from, from communities across New Zealand environment. Uncharacteristically shy audience. Mm. There's one. <laughs> Before they change their mind, that's right. Um, I'm just interested in how, um, or strategies for involving children and young people in creating a, a positive future. And the, yeah, your ideas around that. I just can't, we just, the Ministry of Transport has just been involved in a, a thing called Next Generation Conversation and they've actually engaged with kids between the age of 9 and 14 in Christchurch and it follows on from the similar, the same group of kids getting involved in conversations about resilience and, and climate adaptation 
And it's really fascinating, and they've just done a presentation. They were going to do a presentation to the Minister of Transport, but we got the message um, he's not available two hours before the media released his financial indiscretion, sadly. But, um, so in other words, that you can do it, and, and I think my point would be that we should engage with kids, and, and you can't just put a bit of paper out there and ask them to comment on it. You actually have to talk to them. And the work they've done, or that's been, and I've been involved a little bit, has been absolutely fascinating, because kids really get it when you actually start talking to them about evidence and science in a really age-appropriate way, they totally get it. So one comment we talked about is who should pay for roads. And they actually understand that roads impact people who might not necessarily be using them and, and who should pay for stuff. So they, do, they really understand stuff and have really important views. So, but you have to be intentional. You can't put a document out, a classic, the classic way we engage, and expect them to comment, because they're not going to. You have to actually go and talk to them. But when you do, they come up with some really profound stuff. And they are thinking about the future, and we should be intentional about doing that. Oh, I was just going to say, a great place to capture children, to have those conversations, is at museums. Because they go there, it's a safe place, they're learning, they're willing to talk. And, you know, if, if policymakers or scientists want to go in there, sort of, you know, and have these conversations, that's a place where they would be, that would be a great, you know, opportunity, I think, to, to tackle some of these issues with young people, yeah. A long time ago I did a, um, I was part of a study uh, where we talked to children about their environment and how much they travelled around Dunedin in that case. And one of the questions that I asked them and followed up with them was, do they like walking? Because I always wondered why kids are in cars all the time. And actually, yes they do. <laughs> and, they, they, and they do like work, walking for all the things that we'd like to think they like walking, which is they have friends, they have fun, they can take their time, they can know their environment. So I guess don't assume because they're on PlayStations all day or whatever it might be, that they actually don't want to be engaged in doing things. It might depend on who's holding the power in their home or what their lives are like or whatever. So, yeah, trust, trust in them. Yeah. Can I add one other comment, which I think it just shows what kids understand and some adults don't. The kids were asked, should cyclists have it be licensed and pay for a license like car drivers? And they sat there and one of them said but don't we want to encourage people to cycle? Why, why would we charge them? And it's really interesting, because you talk to heaps of adults and they say cycling. And, and so kids, the, the, the cyclists should pay. Kids get it. When and no one prompted them. I was sitting there going, I want to tell them the answer here. But I didn't, and they got it when they thought about it, and they totally got it. So we should trust kids, because they got some really cool ideas, and probably re reduce the age to vote to 16. I've got a slightly tangential comment, but don't worry, it's relevant. <laughs> um, uh, there's some really cool research on development of very young children and how they play in nature. And one of the biggest challenges for you know, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, is if they aren't familiar with it, they don't even quite know what to do. Um, I think there are major equity issues involved here as well. Parents who might be working two jobs, for example. You know, just getting your child out to a green area in a backyard, or if you don't have a backyard, major equality issues. So I think supporting parents to raise their children in the way they want to raise them and give them some freedom in being able to do that, I think, is absolutely critical here. Otherwise, um, we're just creating barriers for them to be part of these conversations as they get older as well. I think it's really important that you go to them where they are at and have those conversations on their own terms. 
um, but also don't presuppose the things that are important to them. And we would have our youth council come and present to us and on their three monthly reporting cycle. And dutifully, one of my colleagues would say, well, what do you think about playgrounds? Uh, as if that was the entire scope of their frame of reference. Uh, and, you know, they had views about playgrounds, obviously, but also had far bigger things uh, on their minds that, um, that they wanted to talk about. And that's the second point I wanted to make is that if you're going to ask them, you have to be prepared to listen to them and actually take that advice because, you know, um, they've got plenty of other things they could be doing that aren't doing an NZTA consultation or, you know, they're only going to waste their time once uh, and if they don't see value in participating, it's easy to lose people. So you have to have a, um, yeah, you have to do it in an intentional way and be prepared to... Um, to act on the feedback that you get, otherwise you 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 will lose them. Did the kids suggest those blue dots on George Street? <laughs> <laughs> I think that came from a um, a style guide out of Auckland. Uh, the, the the innovating streets people were always very confused at why people weren't drawing down the funds that were made available to them, uh, councils to make them wildly unpopular uh, with their communities. 90% funded, that wildly unpopular idea was. Uh, are there any other questions, he says, hopefully, uh, at this point that aren't transport related? Um, just a question about trees and rain, and you mentioned... Um, deciduous and evergreen. Is there sort of like a proportion of evergreen trees that would be best? To yeah. Well, most of our natives are evergreen. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but I'd add that you know, like um, uh, for example, for using a tree to filter particulate matter from the air, having larger leaf area, for example, is important. But, um, I, I mean, personally, I think we want our, our natural systems, even in cities, to have multiple functions, and protecting and enhancing biodiversity is one. There's some really cool examples where, for example, um, around Wellington, Wollombekia stonii, reduced to 50 plants in the world, uh, has been propagated in uh, road islands, roundabouts. Now, thousands of them exist. So I think it's a really good example of where actually the community are involved in looking after those species and we're using these places not just to enhance wellbeing but to enhance biodiversity on which we rely. I, the question was really specific about, and I, I, the subtext is that you should all plant natives, but if you weren't going to, is there a, is there a proportion that would make it work? I have no comment on that. Uh. <laughs> uh, so it, it comes down to your hierarchy of requirements. So if you want to be really narrow focused, then that puts you in one direction. And if you want to go wider, mm. then you go into a different direction. Um, the main thing is not to do single species clones to get landscape architect ticked off avenues because you'll end up with something like myrtle rust that attacks specific clones um, or any other number of diseases. So it's that cunning landscape architecture that creates us diversity to start with rather than setting us up to failure with individual species. But absolutely, the side of, you know, it's so cold, you need sun, sun penetration in the winter. Um, well, sorry, I'm an Aucklander. It's really cold outside. Um, but... 
I know here I can use a tree that's evergreen and get sun penetration in winter just by lifting the canopy. Yep, so the, the, the people sometimes fall into the idea that, that deciduous is needed because of sun penetration and it, it's not needed all the time. Oh, a few trees are right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, can I ask you a question? Is it okay to have fruit trees? Is there anything, anything in the air or, you know, fruit trees is... Is there's a resilience argument for having fruit trees, that if you grow fruit, it's really good. When you have, for instance, natural disasters and you can't get food in, actually growing food is really good. There's an argument, there's, there's some projects been looking at trying to grow fruit on school routes so that kids can just pick fruit when they're walking. So I think there's a real argument for saying, because we know that mental health is good, physical health is good by having trees, and fruit trees are also good for resilience. So. I hope I'm not going to get told off for saying because they're not natives generally. Are they? Well, I've got something to add. So there's some really cool research out of Auckland too showing a cultural lens on this that not every park is for every person, mm. but a designer park needs to suit, suit the community. And so, for mm. example, some Polynesian communities in Auckland have been found to prefer fruit trees in their green spaces. So let's provide green spaces, uh, fruit trees, because mm. they're going to use them and engage with them. And I, I'd probably put engagement with the place over just providing natives, but you know, my job requires me to say one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's another issue about trees on streets, so there is a, about streets is that one of the challenges is that local authorities don't like trees a lot because they have to maintain them, they have to pick up the fruits, and yet, and, and, and so there are costs to local authorities, but actually the benefit obviously in many cases accrues to the Ministry of Health, right? So that because if people's mental health is better and physical health and they're getting more fruit, then the benefits, so we need to think about joining up government, but we also need to acknowledge that the mental health benefits and physical health benefits of greenery are significant. I would just add, you know, yeah, picking up fruit, but actually there's so much so social enterprise out there. You know, the fruit harvest people, we've got them up the valley. They come round and, ha and harvest your fruit if you can't climb up a ladder to pick apples or whatever it is. And that's happening more and more, and we need to anticipate that into the future too. So I think plant the trees. Man, we'll deal with the fruit when it comes. <laughs> I'm all about that. I get sick of these little tussocky plantings, tussock, 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 and a little pattern looks really designery, but it's so boring and, and lacks diversity, and we need more more bees and more, you know, more of all of that. Simon's making a very good case for wider those wider benefits being considered in transport project decision making, which largely they are specifically excluded from, which is complete um, madness. We are, we are losing people already. So uh, this seems like a, a natural place to end. I just want to thank uh, everyone for, for making it out. As our northern visitors are so fond of reminding us, uh, it is not the most... Uh, uh, inviting climate necessarily out of doors today but you made it so thank you for coming down and being a part of this discussion and I'd like to invite you to join me in thanking our, our visitors uh, and presenters today. <laughs>